I would argue that the number one reason that we don't achieve our goals, whether it's sales goals, whether it's health goals, fitness goals, life goals, the number one reason we don't achieve our goals is very simple. The number one reason is we quit. We quit. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders who are rewriting the rules of sales and success. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. Very excited to be bringing back one of the original guests on this podcast. For those who are maybe new to the show, we originally had this podcast labeled Superhumans at Work. And one of the most incredible people we could bring on the show was Nir Eyal, who wrote the book Indistractable, as well as Hooked, which talked about all of the best habit-forming activities that we can do to be truly superhumans at work. And so it's such a great honor to bring him back onto the show to talk more about the applications of doing the activities that bring results around sales. Why is it that some of us struggle on doing what are the basics that need to be done to bring the results? What's going on in our mind? What are those key habits we need to build? And what are some of the principles that we can build inside our sales process to make people really excited about jumping on calls with us and actually excited about speaking with us? I'm so excited to have this conversation with this man. He's spoken on stages around the world, is a Mind Valley author as well, and he's here to share on the Selling with Love podcast. Nir, welcome back to the show, and it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much. It's great to be back. I know. And, you know, we were having a bit of a conversation off air. We're basically in the same area of the world. You know, you're just a bit south from me right now. I'm here in Malaysia recording in a mobile studio. You're out in Singapore. You know, just going on a personal side, you know, you make a lot of decisions. I consider you someone that optimizes your decision-making process in general. And I'd be curious to know what attracted you to move out to Singapore and, you know, start building a piece of your life history here. Yeah, I just really love Singapore. It's just a beautiful country. And for the life phase that we're in right now, married and one kid who's a 14-year-old, just really fit our lifestyle right now. So no other really good reason other than we just like it here. It's very safe, clean. It's right in the middle of Asia, a two-hour flight to so many interesting parts of the world to go see. And yeah, we hop around back and forth between the States and here, but we spend almost all our time in Singapore now. I love it. Well, I'd say that makes a, a good sale and a good case for Singapore in general. But going to the topic at hand, you know, when we're speaking about doing sales activities, the majority of people that would be listening on to this show and what I'm really trying to do as an impact in the world is I'm trying to help people heal some of the blocks we have around sales. There's certain habits you need to build and there's a lot of resistance that seems to exist in the realm of getting into sales and being excellent at sales. And I'd love to open up with your experience about teaching some of the principles you have. Like are salespeople usually the types of customers that come to you looking for answers to the problems that they seem in their process of doing their sales work? So the biggest problem I see in terms of people getting to the next level with their sales practice is understanding their internal triggers. And these internal triggers aren't really familiar to most people. You don't really hear about them in the typical sales training. But I would argue that the number one reason that we don't achieve our goals, whether it's sales goals, whether it's health goals, fitness goals, life goals, the number one reason we don't achieve our goals is very simple. The number one reason is we quit. We quit. That's the number one reason why people don't achieve pretty much any goal. Now, why do people quit? If that's the number one cause of not achieving your goal, why do we quit? And I would argue the number one reason we quit at a task is that we don't feel like continuing. I mean, it's just basic logic here. Something inside us tells us to stop. So that feeling 
is something I don't think we spend enough time on. When we think about, oh, you know, I need to go to the gym today. I know it's important, but I don't feel like it. Or I know I need to go to bed. It's important to get proper rest, but I don't feel like it. I know I need to make my sales calls. I need to follow up, but I don't feel like it. And so those are the internal triggers. That's what we talk about when we talk about internal triggers. We know, studies have found that 90% of our distractions, 90%, we think our distractions are caused by the pings, dings, and rings in our outside environment, right? Our phones, our messages, our colleagues, that these things cause our distractions. And they can be a source of distraction, but they only account for about 10% of our distraction. 90% of our distractions don't originate outside of us. They begin from within. And these are our internal triggers. Uncertainty, stress, anxiety, loneliness, fearfulness, all of these internal triggers are the source of 90% of our distractions. So that for me was a huge revelation in writing my book, Indistractable, because if we don't master these internal triggers, they will become our master. So I think that's the starting point to master any sort of distraction in your life in order to overcome it, whether it's you know whatever blockages you have to not making your sales calls or not following up or not doing anything in your life that you say you're going to do, the first place to start to become indistractable is mastering those internal triggers. I love that's where we're starting because there's one of the classic stories in sales, which is like, all right, if your job, let's say, is 100% doing sales, well, what do you do? You get into the office at nine, and the first thing you do is like, well, nobody's in the office at nine, so I'm just going to take a moment before I start calling people because nobody's going to be in the office. So you wait a bit, and maybe you read the journal, catch up on the news, and make sure you're up to date with current affairs. Then you're like, I might as well make a coffee. Now 10 o'clock rolls in and you're like, oh, okay, well, I had my coffee. I guess I need to organize my sales list, so let me do that. Then it's 11 comes in. You're like, well, most of my leads are probably gone for an early lunch anyway, so I might as well wait till the afternoon to call them. Then you wait till the afternoon and then you know you go and find somebody to talk to and the day goes by and you haven't made a single call. And like that's a story of you know someone that might be, <laughs> they're, they're completely missing the mark when it's a game of numbers and there's certain things that need to happen to get results. So- if I'm having this kind of day where it's not a question of not knowing what I need to know, like we know what we need to do to be successful in sales, what can we do to become someone that's actually changing these habits and as we become aware of it? Right. Yeah. So the first step is master these internal triggers or they will become your master. So the reason we procrastinate is not that something's broken about us. We're not defective somehow. It's simply an emotion regulation problem. What you need to realize is that time management is pain management. I'm going to say this again, super important. Time management is pain management. I would add to that weight management is pain management. Money management is pain management. In fact, all human behavior, all human behavior, we used to think that human behavior was motivated by carrots and sticks, right? The pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Not true. We know neurologically speaking, the brain only responds to one thing. The reason we do anything and everything is to escape discomfort. That in the brain is what gets us to act right? Even the desire to feel good. You say, well, well, then why do I have incentives and bonuses? And you know, don't people want to feel good? Of course they do. But the way the brain gets you to act, to go get that thing, is by creating a craving, a lusting, desire. All those emotions are themselves psychologically destabilizing. And once you realize that, that all human behavior is driven by a desire to escape discomfort, and that time management is pain management, you can take a step back and say, wait, wait, wait. I said I was going to come into work early and make these sales calls. Why am I not doing that? And the reason is because you're looking to escape a feeling. There's some kind of sensation that you're not able to process in a helpful way and you deal with it in a hurtful way. And so this is the difference between traction 
and distraction. You know, if you ask people, what's the opposite of distraction? People say, oh, I don't want to be distracted. I want to be focused. But the opposite of distraction is not focused. The opposite of distraction is traction. You know, I, I didn't think about it this until I actually saw the origin of both these words. They come from the Latin root trahare, which means to pull. And you'll notice that traction and distraction end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. Reminding us that distraction is not something that happens to us, it is an action that we take. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do, things that you do with intent, things that move you closer to your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of traction. The opposite of traction, distraction, pulls you away from what you said you were going to do, further away from your values, further away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. So this is really important. This is more than just semantics because I would argue that any action can be traction or distraction based on one word. And that one word is intent, right? If you plan to play video games or scroll social media or do whatever you want, right? Whatever's fun for you. If you plan to do that in advance, do it, enjoy it. There's nothing wrong with it. You've made it into traction. But if it's not what you said you were going to do, it's instantly distraction. And the most harmful kind of distraction, especially when it comes to sales professionals, is when they think they are doing something productive, right? This used to happen to me all the time. I would sit down at my desk at work and I would say, okay, today I've got that big important project I need to work on. Nothing's gonna get in my way. I'm not gonna get distracted. Here I go, I'm gonna get started. But first, let me check some email right? Let me just scroll that Slack channel real quick. Let me just do some of these other to-dos that are just easy to do. I'll get them off my to-do list to get some momentum going, right? And I didn't realize that that is the most dangerous form of distraction is when distraction tricks you into prioritizing the urgent and the easy at the expense of the hard and important work you have to do to move your life and career forward. So just because it's a work-related task doesn't mean it's not a distraction. I would see this all the time. You know, I used to sell solar energy. That was the first business I started. And with our salespeople, I would see, you know, the unsuccessful salespeople were the people who had everything lined up. Okay, let me make sure I've read every brochure and I'm confident on, on how our product works. And I, I've gone over the sales script a thousand times and I have my pencils ready and I have my gear. And they didn't just make the freaking calls, <laughs> right? You gotta make the calls. You have to follow up. And so those are the people who weren't successful because they did all the stuff that was secondary as opposed to, nope, I said from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m., I'm making my calls. <laughs> That's what I gotta do. So being able to simply put in the hours without distraction is a key skill. I would argue it's the skill because you know, people talk about, okay, I want to perfect my sales presentation and you know, my appearance or my whatever skill set. If you don't have the power to control your attention and time, you can't develop other skills. You can't put forth the effort to get better at anything unless you control your attention. So this, I think, is the fundamental skill of the century, especially for sales professionals, is be able to do what you say you're going to do with your time and attention. I agree with you so much. And I think what happens in the sales profession, I think it's equally important as any other profession. The only problem is if you are compensated in results of your performance in sales, then you not mastering that ability will be painful financially and the feedback will be immediate. But we'll also find different things to blame, right? Because as you've mentioned, like it seems very productive if all I'm doing is, you know, refining my sales presentation, making sure I'm better. And it's almost like as we talk about this avoidance of pain is kind of what we're to manage. The process of selling itself, if you're having fears about doing sales and sales calls, like it usually comes 
with heavy baggage if you haven't practiced it before. And it seems like the way to soothe that pain is, well, if I'm better prepared, better certified, better qualified, better X, Y, Z, then it will be less painful to make those calls. So then I'll be able to do them more effectively. What have you noticed on how to balance that where it's like, hey, at some point you just need to do it? Right. Well, I would say that for the most part, that's a myth. People think that the more training I get, the more I know, the better I'll feel. And that, I think, almost never happens. I think that's a myth. What changes, what happens to make you better able to deal with that discomfort is that you decide to see the discomfort differently. So this is called reimagining the trigger. I'll give you an example in my own life. So I'm a professional public speaker, okay? And one thing you don't want as a professional public speaker is to get stage fright. And I used to get stage fright all the time. In fact, I still get stage fright, right? So I'm about to go on stage in front of a thousand people and uh, I would have this shortening of breath. I, you know, I'd feel that I have kind of this difficulty breathing and I could feel my heartbeat and my mouth would get dry and my armpits would get sweaty. And I used to tell myself, you know what? If I was a real public speaker, I wouldn't feel this way right? How many salespeople tell themselves, oh, if I was good at this job, I wouldn't get nervous in front of the client or I wouldn't have doubts, right? That's what I used to do to myself, which wasn't helpful. I had this narrative in my head that I was faking it, that I wasn't cut out for this, that I wasn't any good at it, that I need to go study more and take another course so that someday I'll feel comfortable. BS. You never get comfortable. What you do is you reimagine the trigger. So what did I do? One day, I was reading this research around how to reimagine a trigger. I spent a lot of time reading academic papers. And the technique was, it's called reframing. So what you want to do, what I did, was I started reframing how I saw that trigger. The trigger didn't change. I still got a shortness of breath. I could still feel my pulse. My armpits still got sweaty. But instead, I started telling myself a different story. Not a narrative that this was a bad thing, but that that discomfort was a good thing. And this is what you see with top performers in every life domain, whether it's sports, whether it's the arts, whether it's business, top performers, they get the same internal triggers. They feel the same way everyone else does, but they use that discomfort as rocket fuel to propel them towards traction. Whereas what most people do, low performers, they escape it. Whenever they feel that discomfort, they try and escape it with distraction. So what did I do? What did I reframe? Instead of thinking, oh, this discomfort is a bad thing, I started telling myself, you know what's happening right now? The fact that my heart is beating faster, that means that my body is preparing me by pumping more oxygen to my brain so I can give the best possible presentation. I started seeing it as an asset. And so we can all do this. If you can step into the next presentation and say, you know what, I'm feeling nervous because I'm excited. This is important to me. I believe in my product. My consumer, my customer is going to benefit. I'm doing them a favor by being here today and I'm excited to present to them. You can reimagine that internal trigger as a thing that serves you rather than hurts you. That's a powerful one. And I want to make the confession, if I can join your camp on this also as a public speaker is, yeah, I still get nervous going on stage. But again, reframing is such a powerful tool. And I'll go a step further and say, as someone who does sales all the time, I have that little voice in my head sometimes that tells me, Jason, have you been doing as much sales as you used to? You've been training a lot, but you haven't been active on the phone. Maybe you need to get more training. And that voice that wants to you know, distract you, make you go do something else, except what you actually do is there continuously, no matter how much I master the skill as I continue on the journey. 
It's always there. I just decided to make friends with it and trying to understand it better. And quite frankly, your book is one of the more powerful ways that allowed me to become aware of all the different strategies that my mind plays on myself. And for those who haven't picked up a copy of Indistractable, I highly, highly, highly recommend it for you to gain some level of awareness and mastery over your time management. We will have a link in the show notes so you can actually go and grab yourself a copy. It's such a mind-blowing playbook to keep at your side, which is why I'm so glad that you're back on the show and sharing a bit more with us, Nir. Thank you so much. Okay, so I want to go a little more on sales-driven stuff here that's more like applied levels of sales. So with Indistractable, like you're 100% right. Most of us are going to try to avoid the pain. We have to go through it. The myth of getting another certification, quite frankly, there's an entire industry that fuels on that insecurity. (laughs) That's right. That's never going to tell you you have enough, right? I've never seen anyone say, you know what? You're qualified. Done. Don't take my course. Yeah, no, and it's fascinating to me because I see so many amazing individuals, instead of going out there and doing what needs to be done to sell, they'll be like, you know what, I'm going to go spend another 10 grand on a certification and then I'll feel like I'm qualified enough. But no, what you're saying is you got to go in and make it happen. But going back to some of your earlier work, and you know, one of the first things that connected me to you was through the work you did through Hooked. And for those who aren't familiar, Hooked talks about how to build habit forming applications and how to design things that really get consumers to come back. And I'd be curious to know if you had some work of people applying your work around Hooked, designing applications that actually supported things around conversions, around sales processes, or strategy. Are there any case studies that you've worked with that you found, oh, that's really interesting for building loyalty and business growth in the process? Yeah, I will say before we go from book to book, I will say, you know, mastering the internal triggers, that's only step one. So we didn't cover step two, three, and four to becoming an industry. So there's a lot more. I don't want people to walk away thinking, oh, that's all I need to do is reframe the internal trigger. That's just step one. And I would argue that's the most important step. It's the one that people, they hear about the least out there in terms of how to deal with these internal triggers that lead to distraction. But there's also making time for traction, which is very, very important. There's hacking back external triggers and there's preventing distraction with packs, which we can come back to if it's interesting. But I just don't want to leave people with the impression that we're done with indistractable because there's a lot more there as well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one thing I do want to highlight as well is because on our first episode, we definitely went really in deep on all of these concepts. And what I want to make sure for anybody who's really dealing with these distractibility issues, I will also put a link to our original conversation where we really went deep onto all these aspects as well. And it's application in a broader aspect besides just sales. It was really applied to everything regarding being a superhumans at work. And again, as I mentioned, when you're in sales, the moment your performance drops, you get to feel it more directly. So it's so important to be on top of it as well. If you're trying to stay focused on getting work done and eating throughout the day is something you think about, have to decide, and you're not sure what to do, and you just wish an option was available where the right meal with all of the specifications you want be available to you, easy to make under two minutes, well, luckily for you, Factor is available where you have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including options like keto, calorie smart, vegan, and veggie. And you can enjoy over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons to help you make your weekly meal planning even more delicious. So what are you waiting for? You can get started today and have a feel-good week of meals ready to go. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking up for something fast that's upscale option done very easily. It's flexible on your schedule where you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. No prep necessary. They're 100% ready to heat and eat. So there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup necessary. 
Head to factormeals.com slash sellingwithlove50 and use code sellingwithlove50 to get 50% off. That's code sellingwithlove50 at factormeals.com slash sellingwithlove50 and you'll get 50% off. Not bad. And so, yes, I'd love to go back into the hooked example about, you know, using these types of things you've noticed can actually help optimize our sales processes in the meantime. Yeah, so I think there's lots of lessons that you can draw from Hooked about how to build habit-forming products, but I will give a disclaimer that the book was not written for sales professionals per se. It was written for people who are building product. So this might be something that you might be able to work with your product team if you're selling, for example, I don't know, enterprise SaaS software, right? Well, that's a product that once it's sold, if it's not used, if people don't engage with that product, the customer is going to churn out, they're going to stop paying. And you know, that's terrible for business, right? So you've got to figure out also, sometimes it's not good enough to just sell in a product, you have to make sure that people continue to use the product in order to get the benefit from the product and as well to keep the company afloat. So my book was written more for people who are building the products, but you can also read it as a primer to consumer psychology. And I think that's applicable to everyone. So if it is a one time transaction, then you don't need to do everything in the book right? You can piecemeal and use some of the tactics. So for example, I talk about the power of investment, how products that get users to invest in the service to make it better with you. So when you think about how when you use a social media product, how the data you give the company tweaks the algorithm to customize the service just for you. What does that look like in the sales world? Well, you know, I used to work with many sales professionals who didn't remember anything about their clients or their prospects. And so one of the lessons here is if you have a conversation with someone, if you sit down with someone, let's say it's your good friend and you go out to lunch with them and you kind of bare your soul and you say, hey, here's what's going on with my family. Here's what's going on with work. Here's what's going on in my life. And then you say goodbye and you don't see them for a few weeks. And then you get back together, you see them for lunch again in a week or two and they don't remember anything you told them. What does that tell you? Either they have amnesia or they're not a very good friend. And so it's imperative that, not only do the products that we use improve with use, but also we as sales professionals, we should improve with that interaction, right? It's incredibly important these days to keep tabs on your customers' needs, you know, personally and professionally. It's incredible how many people don't really do that. You know, it used to be difficult. It used to be hard to keep a Rolodex, you know, if anybody remembers what the heck that was. It was really hard to like write down on the note cards and then put in your Rolodex all the stuff that you wanted to remember. Today, there are so many tools out there that make it so easy to keep track of this so that that relationship grows over time. So the more someone invests in a relationship with you by disclosing data, by disclosing information about you know, their business or their personal life, whatever they're okay with sharing with you, of course, we never share that, right? We don't want to gossip about people. That's an intrusion of privacy. But in terms of remembering that those kind of details, even if you don't have a great memory like I don't have, you want to make sure that you can remember those details when it's needed. So even if you're using some kind of app or service to help you remember those details, this is how you build a long-term relationship. This is how you build a, a habit-forming relationship, whether it's a habit-forming product or not. You know, I think one of the things that I've been able to apply a lot from Hook is in the way that, you know, for those who are building online courses, running communities, and even in my own sales process, I'm actually using your concepts. I don't touch the world of SaaS, but I've been using the concepts of your consumer psychology within my sales process so much. And touching on this one specifically, use cases that I've had is for a lot of people that come into my ecosystem, there's a series of questions that I ask about their pain points that they might have around their own struggles in sales. And I ask them to rate themselves so that 
that when we jump on a sales conversation, I ask them to tell me more. I know where they're coming from. I know how to speak to them because I've collected some of that data. And they're more invested into showing up for the call because they've actually inputted data as well. So for me in the sales process, that's the direct application that I have of your processes. And when it comes to these online courses, again, for a lot of us who might want to go okay, I'm going to build a course and I'm going to sell it and it's going to be super successful. Everyone's going to refer everyone because it's going to be such an amazing course. People go and spend hours, they'll get in a cave, they'll build a perfect course and then they'll come out, they'll put it out to the world. They might sell a couple, but then you go look at the data and you have 8% on average of people that will actually consume the course that you sold to them. And then you're starting to realize, wow, the engagement is so low. How can you transform people if they're not even consuming what you've created? And so I'd love to hear maybe some of the other advice that you usually give for people that have created a product they feel is amazing, but people aren't touching them. Right. So there's a few big principles. So step number one is actually starting back with those internal triggers we talked about in Indistractable. When we build a habit-forming product, we need to attach that product's use to a pain point. Right. This is why we use every product and service we talked about earlier. The seat of human motivation is the desire to escape discomfort. So having a very clear psychological itch, not a functional need, right? Not, oh, my product needs to put together database software. No. What is the psychological need, right? What is that uncomfortable emotional state that every time they feel that emotion, your product or service is the solution to that problem. You're the salve for their itch. That's step number one. What is your trigger? Then you have the internal trigger. You also need the external trigger. What's the prompt that brings them to action? The next step of the hook is the action phase. And this is defined as the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. That many people, as they design a product or service, they think that, hey, if the user knows what the service is, if they understand how great it is, then they'll use it. And that's not true. That in addition to the product of the user having sufficient motivation, they also have to have sufficient ability. And this nine times out of 10, when a service is not used or when a user doesn't do an intended behavior, it's not because they don't want to, it's because it's too difficult to do. And that difficulty creates what's called friction. And so friction can take the form of time, money, physical effort, cognitive load if something is difficult to understand. So it's your job to clear away as much of that friction as possible. And you can do that in all kinds of ways. The easy solution, but the most expensive is to reduce the price, right? If you reduce the price of a product, you reduce the friction, you're more likely to increase ability and the action will occur. But of course, that's very expensive, right? That comes straight out of your bottom line. So there's all kinds of other things you can do to reduce friction, making the product easier to understand. You wouldn't believe, you know, especially when it comes to software sales, many times people don't buy because it's just too complicated, right? Like, where do I click? What do I do? It's just too much information for them to take in. And so they say, eh, it's okay. I'm just gonna continue my day. I'm not gonna buy. You know, saving them time, physical effort. If your product is some kind of physical product, social deviance, this becomes a big one. People don't do a behavior if they don't see other people like them doing it. It's called mimetic desire, that almost everything we desire, everything we want, according to philosopher René Girard, comes from the fact that we see other people using it, right? So, you know, is it valid for me to buy a product? Is there anybody like me using it? Of course, that's where we can use testimonials, but the closer those testimonials are to somebody I actually know or somebody who is like me, the more likely to be effective. So there's all kinds of psychological tools you can use to decrease friction to make the product something that people are more likely to use. Then the third step of the hook is the variable reward phase. And variable rewards are all about what's called an intermittent reinforcement that we know that when we give people what they want, when we give them a reward on a predictable schedule, it's something that they can rely upon, but it's not typically something that will create a habit. It doesn't create repeat engagement. When there's some kind of 
variability, some kind of surprise in a product. If you think about, you know, why do people day trade stocks? Not to offend anyone, but day trading is one of the best ways to lose money. It's not a good financial strategy. Best financial strategy, according to years and years of research, unless you've got some insider information, the best thing you can do is put your money and go away, right? Put it in the S&P or put it in some mutual fund. You're not going to get rich day trading unless you've got some insider information, which is typically illegal. But why do people love playing the markets? Because it's this slot machine. It's this variable reward of going up and down and up and down and trying to control something that's uncontrollable. When you think about what makes sports fun to watch, why do we like a ball bouncing around a court or a pitch? It's uncertainty about who might win. What makes a book fun to read or a movie fun to watch? It's because there's variability about what's going to happen at the end. So some bit of uncertainty, some kind of excitement, some kind of a variability is at the core of all sorts of habit-forming products, whether it's scrolling a feed, whether it's pulling on a slot machine, same psychological phenomenon of variable reinforcement. And then finally, there's that investment phase, which we talked about a little bit before, where the more the product is used, the better it becomes. It increases in value. It should appreciate, not depreciate, appreciate with value the more it's used. So the more data I give to a product, the more connections I have, the higher my reputation, for example, anything that makes the product better and better the more I use it makes me more likely to come back in the future. So it's through successive cycles through these hooks, trigger, action, reward, investment, this is how our preferences are shaped and how our tastes are formed. Wow. I love it because it's been what? I think it's been six years since we had our first conversation going through this product. It's things that have embedded and now it's being refreshed. And I think for anybody who's out there building any kind of business, these are such powerful things to keep in mind in the product design, in your sales process design. And not all of them are as intuitive to use. Like the variable reward might be something that's a bit more difficult to engineer if you're not designing particularly a SaaS product. But I do feel that this thing around putting in data has been the major trend that I've seen for a lot of people that are building you know, online businesses around educating and bringing people together and solving problems. Why the community aspect seems to be one of the biggest things. That investment phase, so sorry to interrupt you, Jason. I just wanna say that investment phase, it's always been important. It's always been a critical part of the hook model. But since I wrote Hooked, ChatGPT is you know, a phenomenon that we've only seen in the last few months. So with the rise of large language models like ChatGPT, the investment phase is going to become incredibly important. So all kinds of products of the future, the, the ones that are going to dominate their markets, it's not going to be optional anymore to not customize the service. The fact that now we can plug our product into a large language model like ChatGPT means that very quickly there'll be no excuse to not customize every service to a market of one. Right, Because now I know, oh, it's Jason who came to my website. It's Jason who came to use my service. How can I customize the product based on his past data so that the product is better now that he's come back to use it? And so now that's possible in a way it's never been possible before. Yeah, well, since you did open the can of worm with ChatGPT, it is a significant part of the conversation to have because I do feel like it's a fundamental shift on how a lot of us are going to be operating in business. I'd be curious to know if you're going to be able to do so much with tools like AI, do you still see one of the activities that we should be focusing on if we want to create a product that will actually stand out to the competition if everybody has access to an incredible tool like ChatGPT? Yeah, I think it makes stickiness possible at scale in a way that it wasn't possible before. So you know, like if when you use TikTok, what TikTok did that really set it apart is that they have an amazing algorithm that just with a few pieces of information can very accurately predict what you'd like to see next. 
So based on you know how long you watched one video, they can ascertain all kinds of information about you that will make it more likely that the next video they serve will be something you might enjoy. And they do this again and again and again and again. The more you use it, the better the algorithm gets. So that was something that was very expensive and very exclusive to the kind of products that really focused on that. Well, now that's become democratized. We can all do that now, right? Because we can all use these type tools. I don't like to call them AI. I actually don't think that ChatGPT is an AI. It's a large language model. People start thinking AI is like, you know, artificial general intelligence. It's not Skynet, you know, it's not intelligent. It's really good at replicating what's already been done based on some input. I don't think we're at risk of ChatGPT coming up with brilliant novel insights for you know the next great business book. Like It doesn't generate novel insights. It takes what's already there and replicates based on some kind of model. So like it's really good at writing sales emails, you know, based on here, put the customer's name here and their address there. And the email kind of looks the same, you know, maybe customize a few features. Now you can do that in a scalable way that you could never do before because you could put in like, oh, ask about how their dog is doing. And, you know, did you see the game for their favorite team? You can do that in a way that would have been very difficult before. Now you can do that at scale. So we're going to start seeing all kinds of, I think, not only sales solutions, but also ways that products, all kinds of products that serve our customers will be forced to change to keep up with the competition in order to satisfy the user's needs. So like, okay, well, give me an example. Like I think in a few years, if you're a millennial versus a boomer, you're going to see a website differently, right? If they know your age, you're going to see like, you know, for my parents, when they go to a website, they have to blow it up. It's really hard for them to see. It's very difficult. Like if they know, hey, the person who's visiting is this age demographic, well, they can change the page to make it look the way that they're most likely to respond to versus a page for someone who's a millennial who wants the page to look completely different. That's a very simple example. But I think you're going to see that in all sorts of products and services. You know, it makes me laugh at some of the memes I'm seeing on the internet where they're explaining the difference in languages between Gen Z and millennials. And then there, you can see like a Gen Z will say a certain word, the millennial will say a different. So they're speaking a completely different language. And now what you're saying is like most of our experiences with, oh my God, what I'm looking forward to are chatbots with customer care that's actually going to speak a language that it understands. Oh my God, that's going to be a part of the sales process and going to be a game changer because all chatbots before, sorry, you call it language learning models. Can you repeat that? Sure. Large language model. So that's what ChatGPT actually is. It's a large language model. It just basically predicts what's most likely to come next. That's all it's doing. It scraped the internet, digested as much as it possibly could have access to. And then based on what came before, it's very good at knowing patterns. So if it said Mary had a little lamb, right? You know that next word is because it's been trained based on what should come next. So when you say, you know, if you take that up a few notches and you say, write a sales letter, well, it's seen millions of sales letters and then it knows it has a basic format. So what looks like when you type in, write a sales letter to John Smith at this and this address and tell him about our latest offer, you can literally put that prompt in and it will blah, 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 you know, write out what looks like a magic, you know, perfectly customized letter for you, not because it's intelligent, but because it's been trained to know what that should look like. So you're absolutely right. I think we're going to see this in all kinds of places. You're totally right. I mean, I, I can't wait for the day when I can actually chat with a representative online without waiting for a real life person to answer. Like an LLM is perfect at saying, you know, I'm moving, change my address. Okay, no problem. And it can do that without having to fill out a stupid form field. Well, I don't know if you'll like this idea as an author as well, but one of the things I'm looking forward to experiment with is uploading my book to the model and then saying, hey, can you, you know, address people's answers uh, to the questions they have based on the type of language that I use in my book and the frameworks and values that I believe in and automating at scale some of the personal interaction that we wish we could be able to do with all the people that interact with our materials. So 
exciting times ahead. <laughs> it is. It's, I think it could totally do that. Like if it's a book that's already been written and it says, hey, what does Jason say about such and such? And it can do its best guess of something you've already written. It's going to be excellent at that. What it won't be able to do is, hey, write Jason's next book and make it insightful and most importantly, surprising. It's not going to be very good at saying like, tell me something novel right? That I don't know before, because how would it know what hasn't been said before? It's only been trained on what has already been written. I love that. And it reinforces one of the things I keep telling my audience as well, which is, hey, we have to keep working on what makes us special, what makes us unique, what makes us an expert in what we do, because that is going to be the secret sauce that keeps us being relevant in the field. And with what we discussed today, well, we can design our products to be a little more sticky, and we can master ourselves to be a lot more effective in the process near Thank you so much for coming on the show. I know we scratched the surface of all of the amazing work that you've been doing. Again, for everybody paying attention, like the biggest thing that I always take away from speaking with Nier is just an understanding that we need to master our internal triggers. We need to be aware of them. We need to rewrite this script. And the things that make us uncomfortable and feel painful, we have to look at them differently and use different strategies that he discusses thoroughly in his book so that you go and do those money-making activities. Everything else happens to be a distraction. And if you're not getting the results, we have to look at what are the core activities that we are doing that do bring results and make sure that we do those effectively while managing our time. Time management, pain management being the key factor that we're looking at here and making sure that we are effective in the way that we show up in the world. And of course, our second part here being a bit of a two-part interview we did here, and just looking at the ways to make ourselves more sticky in the way that we design our sales process, our online courses, our communities, and making sure that we're making it easy for people to get the results that they're looking for, applying some of the concepts from both books at the same time. Nir, it's always a pleasure to have a conversation with you, but you're not done yet. I have one question I love to ask everyone who comes on the show, which is, in your words, Nir, what would selling with love mean to you? Selling with love is about fundamentally understanding what the customer wants and delivering it to them as best you can, right? Looking for what their fundamental needs are, not just on a functional level, but really on a psychological level. What does the product really do for them? And do you have the product that can fit that need? I love it. Nir Ayal, everybody, if you go to nearandfar.com, we're also going to have a show notes with the links to his books, more resources like our previous conversation where we go deeper into Indistractable. And once again, Nir, thank you so much for coming back on the show. And everybody listening, go out there, make your products sticky, be effective in being indistractable, and keep selling with love. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.